Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Um, we're going to read from John 15 tonight. We've been reading through John this quarter, and we're going to read a passage that's pretty famous. You might be familiar with it. Uh, and we're actually going to talk about the word that was prominently featured in that last song, abide, what it means to abide. Um, I'm going to read these 11 verses, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it. This is Jesus. He's talking to the disciples on the night right before he was arrested. Um, and he says this to them. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me to my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, and we thank you for this image. And Jesus, uh, there's so much profundity here, it's hard to figure out how to bring it into our heart. And we know this, that our heart is hard, and our heart is distracted, and our heart is intimidated, uh, and we need your Holy Spirit to attend to it, and we need you to make our hearts soft, and give us actually the courage to believe what you've said, and to act on it. So, Holy Spirit, be with us now. Attend to your word. Make these things new and beautiful and transformative for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, a few years ago, someone sent me an article written by an author named Jonathan Franson. And uh, he's one of these kind of like David Foster Wallace type guys, very postmodern, kind of from my generation, not from y'all, so he's very cynical. Um, which cynicism is so fun. Y'all are missing out on that. But um, he said this in this article. In this article, he compared the need to be liked versus the need to be loved. And this is what he said. He said, imagine a person defined by a desperation to be liked. What do you see? You see a person without integrity, without a sinner. In more pathological cases, you see a narcissist, a person who can't tolerate the tarnishing of his or her self-image that not being liked represents and therefore either withdraws from human contact or goes to extreme integrity-sacrificing links to be likable. If you dedicate your existence to being likable and you adopt whatever cool persona is necessary to make it happen, it suggests that you've despaired of being loved for who you really are. That's what he said about being liked. And before we get into the text, I think this is a, there's an apt kind of comparison here between the prospect of being loved and the need to be liked. Because I think the main thing that is killing us is wanting to be liked. 
I think that's probably the greatest danger in a lot of our lives. Because wanting to be liked is this. This is how it functions in our life, right? There's an audience, and that audience could be people around you, it could be family, it could be God Himself. But a, a lot of times the case is that the audience is you. Like You're even examining your own life, what you've put together, what you've done for yourself. And the desire to be liked means that what life, the, fun, the way it fundamentally works for you is it's a big audition. You're auditioning at all moments. Right? You're auditioning day to day simply to be enjoyed. You're auditioning, can I be enjoyed? Um, to be thought of as interesting. Right? We all experience different levels of social anxiety. What is social anxiety other than the audition, the wondering about whether or not your audition to be liked will be received? Right? After RUF, you're like, I don't know these people. How do I, do I have anything interesting to say? It's an audition. Right? That's where our social anxiety is. It's because of the audition. From week to week, we're auditioning in front of the opposite gender. Uh, we're auditioning in front of our professors, in front of our department, in front of our employers. Uh, we're auditioning morally for the approval of God. And you're either auditioning for the moral approval of God or for the moral approval of some other authority, culture, whatever it is. Right? If you're religious, you want God to like you morally. If you're irreligious, you also have a moral authority that you want to be thought well of by. So for the religious person, you wonder from time to time, does God still like me? How am I doing? For the irreligious person, from time to time, you have to kind of check in and say, hey, are my moral sensibilities in line with the prevailing sensibilities of the culture? Right? Am I cool on, on their version of ethics? Right? Some of us changed our flag. It's, it's totally fine to change your profile pic to the French flag. But some of us actually changed our profile pic to the French flag because we were afraid of what people thought if we didn't. Right? That was there. I, I, I want people to know that I'm the kind of person that thinks about this. You're auditioning on Facebook. Right? We're auditioning for ourselves. We're staring in the mirror every day. Metaphorically, but also physically. Do I like what I see? And wanting to be liked, this audition, this constant audition, is this. It comes from the fact that our hearts are actually empty. And so we audition and we hope that something will fill us. We're working on the outside to craft an acceptable appearance, an acceptable resume, an acceptable exterior, hoping that someone will want us, someone will approve, and fill our hearts. We'll look in the mirror and maybe we will fill our hearts with approval. Right? We'll look at God and He'll fill our hearts with approval. We'll look at culture, we'll look at family, we'll look at a lover and they'll fill our hearts. And what we are doing is we are living outside in living. We're starting life on the outside. Cultivate this exterior, cultivate this resume, cultivate this personality, cultivate this ability to be likable in front of these different audiences. And if I get their approval and I get their acceptance, it will fill me. We're working on the outside in hopes that it will fill up the inside. Right? Appearances, achievements, and the hopes that I will be filled. And here are the motivators, right, in our auditioning process, in life, living life from the outside in. Two primary motivators, fear and pride. Right? Fear of loss, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of mediocrity, fear of exposure, fear of ugly, fear of commitment. And all these fears are really, really powerful. Now, in a relationship with Jesus, none of those fears are legitimate. In a relationship with Jesus, 
all of those fears are laid aside. This is why the thing the Bible says more often than anything else, the most common command God offers is do not fear. Because He actually recognizes that's the main thing we live by. Because not a single one of those fears are legitimate, right? Fear of loss. Jesus is like, I am always with you. You don't have to fear loss. Fear of failure or mediocrity. He says, my love for you is never based on performance. Fear of exposure. He says, I forgive you for even the deepest, darkest things. Fear of ugly. He says, I will make you beautiful. Fear of commitment. He says, I am committed to you. See, all of the fears wipe away if we live in Jesus. But if we're not full in Jesus, right? We live in fear. We use it. And you can use fear to do great things. It can make you wildly successful. Right? So our motivators in this auditioning process are either fear, but also pride. And this means comparison is very important. Right? The words better and best will be very, very important to you. And the words worst and worse will be how you know anything about yourself. You'll have to use those words all the time. Right? Better or best relative to others. Worse or worst relative to others. And you're going to find that there are people that are above you, ahead of you. You're going to find that there are people beneath you. And we can't really enjoy people's success, and thus we can siphon some off as well. Right? Other than that, we're kind of actually threatened by other people's success. We look at people in comparison. Or, if we don't look at them in comparison, we actually also look at people as mannequins. And this is what I mean. We look at them and they're like, ooh, I like what they're wearing. They're wearing courage. That's kind of cool. I think that would look good on me. I'm going to try that on. They're wearing, they're wearing sensitivity. They're wearing uh, they're, they're listeners. That looks good. I want to try it on. And of course... You're not genuinely becoming courageous because genuinely courageous people don't think about the word courage. It doesn't stem from thinking like, I want to be known as someone who's courageous. It stems from something deeper. And we think, if I look that way on the outside, if I put on some of those things I see that I like on other people, maybe it will fill me up on the inside. So we're living outside in, right? We're auditioning, thinking if I get my outside looking the right way, it'll fill me up in the inside. We're using fear and pride to get there. And here are the rewards of outside in living. First of all, there are temporary windows of happy. The Bible recognizes this. Psalm 73 recognizes this, that people will seem to live this way and at times be happy. They're brief moments of self-satisfaction. But they're very elusive and they always disappear. But more than that, the more constant reward of outside in living is anxiety. And it's anxiety because the more stuff you put on your outside and you accumulate on the outside while being hollow on the inside, you increasingly become aware of how tenuous it is. The heavier the weight gets on the outside when there's nothing, when there's no fullness on the inside, you can't support the weight. And you've actually felt the despair of this kind of living the time when your group of friends just kind of got cold towards you. Right? All of a sudden, your likability was taken away. You didn't know who you were. Uh, the time that your passion just disappeared, right? Work, work, work. I was full of passion. And then there's this moment where your passion disappeared and you didn't know who you were anymore. Right? The moment you were exposed. Because up to that point, it's been impress, impress, impress. And then someone or some group of people found out something. You don't know who you are anymore. The time you gained weight. Right? You trained, you dieted. You gained weight. Who am I? Right? The time you gave intimacy. Right? You gave your body hoping to be loved back and then there was no return. Right? The time someone shone brighter than you, right? you try and try and you try, but you lost or you failed or you came in second. 
And what happens in those moments is we don't know how to think about who we are anymore. And we wonder because we don't know. And what we've got to do is we then have to like reconstruct our identity again. All right, my identity is not what I thought it was. I've got to reconstruct it. And then once you reconstruct it, you then have to ask yourself, is that a life worth living again? And if we're living to be liked, we'll have no sinner. We'll be living from the outside in. And Jesus tells us what the religious version of this kind of living looks like in Matthew 23. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. You're pretty and clean on the outside, but there's nothing. You're hollow. There's actually death on the inside. We're trying to get a sense of ourselves by mimicking life. The life that we think others or we think God or we think ourselves are going to approve of. And it's not filling us. We keep expecting it to. And what I want to convince you of is, uh, we're going to get into the text now, is that the opposite of wanting to be liked is knowing that you're loved. The opposite of wanting to be liked is not not wanting to be liked. Right? Whenever we try to tell people, like, that's not a thing for me, I don't care what people think. If you ever say, I don't care what people think, you're actually lying. Because you felt the need to inform people (laughs) that you don't care what they think. So people who don't care what people think actually would never say that, right? So when we say, I'm not a people pleaser, I don't care what people think, I don't want to be like, that's a secret way of trying to trick ourselves and others into thinking we don't care what people think, but really we just want them to think we're cool because we said something like that. (laughs) It's just a sneaky way of still trying to get people to like you. The opposite of wanting to be liked is actually knowing that you're loved. Wanting to be liked is managing the outsides in the hope of filling the inside. Knowing that your love is being full on the inside in a way that produces a new outside. Wanting to be liked means you manage your outside, socially, professionally, academically, morally, in the hopes of filling you on the inside. Knowing that you're loved is being full on the inside in a way that actually begins to produce a new outside. So let's look at the text, because this, what Jesus is describing, is the life of someone who is full because they know that they are loved. He's describing a different way of living. He gives us the imagery of life as branches, and Him as a vine. And He says, this is life. It is fruitfulness that comes from the inside out. I am the true vine. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, you cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. A branch has life and it produces fruitfulness. This is Fruitfulness is the constant word for the beautiful life that Christ has designed for us, that is Christ-likeness. A branch has life and produces fruit, not from a desire to be liked, but actually from a powerful, secure, filling relationship with the vine. Right? There's a relationship of filling and nourishing. The vine gives life to the branch. And Jesus is saying this, that the way to true change and the way to secure identity is by an internal, vital, life-giving relationship with Him. That life is to be lived from the inside out and not the outside in. And the whole Bible has been given to explore the contour of that relationship. And Jesus, what He is doing is He's describing a person who knows that they are loved. He says this in verse 9, "...as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love, not perform in order to get my love. Abide in my love. Draw on it. The way a branch draws nourishment and life from a vine, it's there and it's yours. And earlier in John 7, Jesus said, "...if you come to me and drink, out of you will flow rivers of living water. You will be so full..." that you will actually fill others. 
You live from fullness, not to get it. His love, this is, this is important for <coughs> the more nerdy kind of Presbyterians in the room like me. His love is not just a factual statement of theology or of history. It is that, but it's also a power. And before we get into what it means to have lives transformed by the power of His love, He gives us two warnings. We'll address that really quickly. He says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. So there's this warning before He gets into the life of someone who's living in fullness. What does it mean He will take away the branches that don't bear fruit? And if anyone doesn't, He says later, if anyone doesn't abide in Me, He's thrown away like a branch that withers. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not contradicting contradicting everything He had said earlier in the Gospel of John. When He says in John 6, whoever comes to Me I will never cast out. When He says in John 10, no one will snatch My people out of My hand. He's not talking about losing your salvation. But this is what He's saying. He's saying that we can put on the appearance of of being a nice Christian-y person and never know Jesus. He's addressing a room full of Jewish men in the ways that they would say it is. They're like, I'm a descendant of Abraham and I go to temple worship and I'm a good Jew and I eat kosher. And it's possible to look like you're a part... They would say, I'm part of the vine. And it's possible to look like you're a part of the vine and never truly be a part of it. And the question in some ways that we have to ask ourselves is whether or not your Christianity, your faith, your, your, the way you think of yourself as a Christian is outside in or inside out. Here's what I mean. Do you tell yourself when you're like, I identify as a Christian, do you rehearse these sorts of things to others or to yourself? Because, I mean, I go to RUF, I go to church sometimes, I've thought about going to a small group, I might even go on the mission trip, I try to read my Bible I even like get coffee with one of the interns or with Britain every now and then. So I call myself a Christian because I try. That's outside in Christianity. It's no meaningful connection to the vine. If that's the way you've conceived of it. Or because inside out Christianity, your heart says this to you. Jesus, you're my life. You're my fullness. You're my forgiveness. You're my hope. So in your moments of doubt, where do you look? Do you look to your activities? Or do you look to your Savior? Because what we could very easily do is we could look like there was actually a branch in our hedge along our back fence. And it was beginning to turn brown, and it was this brown kind of ball in the middle of this green hedge. And I watched it over the course of weeks get more and more brown until I went out there and I touched it, and the second I touched it, it fell out because it was never connected. It associated with a hedge, but it was never actually drawing its life from the vine. It was just trying to look the part, but the personal love of Jesus sometimes is never found in our hearts. So that's Jesus' first warning to His people. But secondly, and this is not so much a warning, but actually a reminder of how God has a vested interest in our fruitfulness. Part of God's, the Father's role as a vine dresser is also that He prunes the branches that are bearing fruit. There'll be pruning. What is that? Pruning is when parts of the plant get snipped so that it can become more fruitful. Sometimes His pruning goes after big nasty things in our lives. God says, hey, 
You need to go and confess your addiction to pornography. You need to tell your teacher that you've cheated. I want to prune that. God actually wants you to bring those things into the light of the gospel so that you can be more fruitful. And it'll hurt short term, right? It'll produce more fruit in the long term. But his pruning, here's the other thing about his pruning. His pruning may also be the things you love about you. Because Jesus wants all of our virtues and all of our character and all of our life to grow out of our life and love in Him. And so we actually have things in our life like, well, there are some things I'm good at I don't need Jesus for. I'm good at being nice. I'm good at kind of like being likable and cordial and welcoming. I'm good at that. I don't need Jesus for that. And this is the way one of my friends said it when he was talking about this. He said the longer he followed Jesus, he actually became a little bit less nice. And this is why. Because God actually snipped down his niceness to reveal that being nice is not the same thing as being kind. And God wanted to grow kindness in him. Because nice is easy, and it's patronizing to get people to think well of us. But God wants us to be kind, and that's harder. And we actually need Jesus to produce that kind of truth. So then we kind of get to the question, the most important burden of the text, how then do we abide in Jesus? How is it that we live in Jesus in a way that it begins to produce transformed lives, right? And the first thing is this, before you even get into that, and this is fundamental to the Christian life and to the Christian faith, and this is a point that if we got wrong, we would subvert Christianity from a true life-giving, healing, redeeming relationship with God to another brand of legalistic, needing-to-be-liked lifestyle. Before Jesus gives the command, abide in me, he gives us a command in this text, before he says that, before he tells his people what to do, he tells them who they are. Before he says that, verse 3, he says, Before I get into the command, you need to know this. Already, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He says, before I tell you what to do, you need to know who you are already. You're already clean, not because of what you've done, and not because of what you've said, but because of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. Does the branch get blessed with life because it produced fruit? No. That doesn't make any sense. That turns the entire illustration into nonsense. The branch actually produces fruit because it is drawing life to the vine, because it is already connected to the vine, because it has life in the vine. The fruit, fruitful living is the result of drawing on Jesus. It's not the precondition you have to meet in order to get the love of Jesus. That's why he says, you can't do anything apart from me. You can't produce the kind of fruit that I'm talking about apart from me. It's actually because you have life in Jesus that we can be fruitful. In light of who we are because of the work of Jesus, Jesus tells us, abide in me. What does that mean? The word abide is where we get the word abode. It means to make your home. It means to remain in Jesus. And this is what it means. Jesus does not want some of our resources, and He doesn't want some of our imagination, and He doesn't want some of our dreams, and He doesn't want some of our heart. He wants it all. He wants to be why we wake up in the morning. Because He loves us. He wants to be why we fight 
to learn how to love other people because He fought to love us. He wants to be why you work hard in school because He gifted you. He wants to be why you rest because He delights in you. He actually wants to be why you're happy because He's happy in you. He wants everything. He wants to be a part of every moment of every day and He wants every bit of real estate in your heart. Abide means that your whole life finds its home in Jesus. A branch cannot draw life from multiple vines. In some ways, that's what we're trying to do with our heart. Right? We're trying to diversify. But Jesus says, whoever abides... And, and I think one of the reasons that sometimes our spiritual vitality barely registers a pulse is because of that. Because we like Jesus... We either like Him as a part of our life, or we like Him as number one in our life. Neither of which those are acceptable. He doesn't want to be number one among priorities. And you, kind of experience, you can't experience life in Him if He's simply number one among the list of priorities. And we can't experience life in Him if He's just simply a part. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And what he's saying is this, the Christian life works from the inside out. That you're filled with his love for you. And that when you're filled with his love for you, it changes you and you bear fruit. And he's not saying that in order to keep this arrangement, you've got to keep the law. When he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in me. He's actually, it's not a conditional promise. He's saying, you will actually know that you're in my love because my commandments and my words will become precious to you. You abide in me by taking my words deep into your heart and letting them overwrite all the other ways you think about everything. Jesus' words shape your reality. You take my words and his, you take his commandments and you park them in our hearts and we draw on Jesus like a branch that pulls nourishment from a vine is to take his words and to draw them. What does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, this is what it means to abide in me, that my words abide in you? It means this. We have, all of us, we have a lot of plans every day. This is how we go through life. and It's a little bit simplistic, but I think it makes sense. You woke up today and there are some obstacles in the way of experiencing full life. We all did. We woke up and there are some obstacles. I want to get to full life today. Here's one of the obstacles. I don't have the fun friendships I imagined. I'm very insecure about these social things. I want to be liked and prized. That's going to be full life. So we woke up. There's that obstacle. Social life's not what I imagined. Here's how to fix it. We have a plan. Become whoever you need to be to make the current audience accept and want you. You know, maybe that means blowing off some schoolwork or something like that. Maybe that means some moral commitments you previously had need to be fudged. They've got to go because life, full life comes when you feel comfortable with these people. Right? So there's a problem. I don't have friendships I want and we enact a plan to fix it. Here's a problem. I'm bitter. I wanted full life today but there's bitterness in me. Somebody has hurt me. So we have a plan to fix it. What's our plan to fix bitterness? We scheme a, a pretty clever <coughs> counterattack of unforgiveness, nursing our bitterness, gossip, and passive aggressiveness. Right? We have several weapons at our disposal. That's how we plan to fix our bitterness problem. Right? Obstacle in life, bitterness, plan to fix it. Passive aggressive, gossip, unforgiveness. Obstacle in life, I feel like I'm a fake or I'm a fraud. Right? I, I want to feel full life, but I know I'm kind of a fake person and people might find out. So what's your plan for fixing it? Put up huge walls 
of success and likability, and then you hide that fraud behind it. Nobody will ever see over those laws, those walls if you build them high enough. So there's a problem in life and a plan to fix it. All throughout the day, almost constantly, we are running up against the problem that we know we were made for full life. This is actually why John is written. He says so that you will believe in Jesus and have life. But life continues to evade us and in each arena, social arena, academic, professional arena, moral arena, psychological arena. Whether or not we're aware, we run into the problem that we don't have life and we've got a plan for fixing it. When Jesus says, abide in me, how? By my words abiding in you. He is saying, let the words of my plan begin to rewrite the way you address these things. I have a plan for fixing all of these things. Come and trust my plan. And here's the thing. It will be very disorienting at first because the way he goes about healing the world and healing you is going to be very different than what our instincts have been telling us. Right? The problem is success. I, I need to experience a certain level of success in order to be happy. So my plan was to work my tail off to get it. And the first thing Jesus is going to say is, life is not in the abundance of things or in making your name great. That is disorienting. Right? I'm lonely. Let's go back to these situations. I'm lonely. I don't have the situation I thought I would have socially. And Jesus says to you, I have known loneliness. First thing that's amazing about Jesus is he's empathetic. I've lost my closest relationship. He lost his relationship. He was separated from his father. He's empathetic. And then he says to you, but I chose to be separated from my father so that you could be with him as your substitute. I know you're lonely, but know this. I will never forsake you. And you know what that does when that becomes the way we begin to deal with loneliness? Is instead of being someone who pathetically needs friendship all the time, who's parasitic, I need a friend, I need a friend, I need a friend, you become someone who gives friendship. Because you're full in Jesus. Right, I'm bitter, I've been hurt. This is blocking the path to full life. And Jesus says, I was betrayed by one of my best friends. He said he loved me, but he didn't. And if you think about it, a lot of people say they love me and they don't. This is what Jesus is thinking and feeling. And he even says this, you know, like, you've treated me this way, but I want you to know this. I forgive you. And I love you. And when those words just sink in, and he's not begrudging his forgiveness, it is his delight. When those words begin to sink in, this is what happened. Instead of kind of executing our plan of passive aggressiveness and unforgiveness and gossip... You become a forgiver. And here's the thing about passive aggressiveness and gossip and unforgiveness. You know what that does? That perpetuates pain in the world. You know what forgiveness does? Stops it cold. Right? I'm a fraud. Jesus says, you know who else was? One of my favorite people, David. He seduced his neighbor's wife, had a man killed. He was a great king on the outside, but his heart was dark. He was a monster on the inside. And I told David that all is required of you is not to build up this wall of respectability and awesomeness, but a broken heart. And David writes about it in Psalm 51. When he says, all I realized that what was required of me is simply a broken and contrite heart. And Jesus had compassion on him. And it softened David's heart. See, when we begin to fill our heart with His words, when He begins to rewrite the ways we deal with brokenness, we will be filled with His love. You'll be filled with lasting hope. You'll be filled with Jesus. 
Now here's the hard part. That sounds nice, but he's not here. Right? What, is that? what does that mean because he's not here? If he's here with me, I feel like I feel like I could begin to get in on what that kind of means in a metaphysical sense. But actually, Jesus right before this says, Hey, by the way, I do know that I'm going away, and that's going to be disorienting. And it's going to be hard for you to figure this out. But he makes this promise, and we read it last week. I will send you my spirit, and what he will do is bring to you remembrance of everything that I have said. That by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's going to take, when we begin to press these words into our heart, and they begin to come alive to us. Abide in me and my words in you. I want to give you all a kind of a visceral illustration of how it is true that actually by taking Jesus' words and putting them into your heart, even when he's far away, fills you with his love. And I wanted to do that by reading the most kind of, this is the, this is the most valuable thing I own. I have full permission to do this. Elizabeth is slightly embarrassed, but she did give me permission. Um, this is a letter that she wrote me in 2011. This was the 10th birthday of my life, 10th birthday that we had spent together. And what she did is she chronicled every birthday that we had spent together for those 10 years. And uh, sometimes when we're away from each other, uh, in two weeks I'll go to Denver for a week, I'll actually take this letter with me. And I'll read it. And I reread it often. She doesn't know how often I reread it. And I'll be in some like terrible hotel that gets like ESPN news and nothing else. <laughs> And like the only restaurant in walking distance will be Chili's. So there'll be an obstacle to full life, right? <laughs> and I'll read this letter and I have permission to read you just the first paragraph. <clears throat> October 20th, 2001. The first birthday I remember. My parents were in town meeting you for the first time, minus your shoes. There was an intramural game. That's good for me. I think you were, uh, I think you were the coach. My mom knew I was into you because I'd asked her to make the dump cake, that's her chocolate cake, and bring them up from Jackson. Oops, I was definitely into you. (laughs) I loved your smile and your enthusiasm for intramurals, your energy and your eyes. I think by this time we had already spent a lot of time together, and that had not helped me get over my silly crush. I was not yet scared to lose you. That was birthday number one. We weren't even dating at this point. When I'm away from Elizabeth, when she's not with me, for a while, I read these letters and these stories. And here's my question for you. Do you think it's possible for us to be away from each other and I have her words and I grow closer to her? Absolutely it is. Do you think it actually heals me? Do you think it actually wipes away loneliness? Absolutely it does. Do you think it can fill my heart up? Absolutely. Do you think it can drive me to want to be a different kind of person? Absolutely. She is not with me. But I have her words of her love, and it changes me. I'm full. And trying to be a better man for her and for her daughters. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about. His word pressed in our hearts by His Spirit. And this is what you get in return. Verse 11. These things I speak to you so that you will have joy. That you'll actually have my joy and your joy may be full. Jesus is giving us very practical advice. Put my words deep into your heart 
That means we have to read it. That means we have to meditate upon it. That means we have to discuss it and study it. It's hard to understand sometimes. That means we have to memorize it. That means we need to talk about it with other people. Not trying to make him happy with our religious observance. Don't ever read the Bible for that reason. I don't read this letter so I can call Elizabeth and tell her I read the letter. (laughs) That's what we think. We're like, I'm going to read the Bible so God can see me reading the Bible. Don't even read the Bible if you're doing it for that reason, okay? I've got to cut that out of the podcast, but... <laughs> read it to get life. Read it to be full. Read it to be transformed. The substantial fruitfulness that arises out of having a full heart that is sure of the love of God in Jesus. That's what he's aiming for. Let's pray.